Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, claims of the paranormal. No way. We take part ourselves. Yep. When they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy. And last week, you got to hear Ross interview Susan Gerbic with special guest star Mark Edward from a couch. That's right. <laughs> and this week, you get to hear me interview Michael Marshall. Oh, this is exciting. I'm going to hear it right before you do. Marsh is both brilliant, genuinely brilliant, and has a British accent. Oh, so, so he sounds brilliant. Yes. Yeah, it's a real one-two punch. But the reason that I wanted to talk to him is because he had just done this really cool investigation of what's called the White Rose Movement in the UK, oh, okay. which is an anti-vax movement that does have some legs over here, and Marsh will get into that, but has a little more of a presence in the UK. And I was going to ask, who is Michael Marsh, and why should I listen to him? <laughs> but you already answered the last part. So who is Michael Marsh? Yes, well, actually, it's Michael Marshall, but the reason that you think it's Michael Marsh is because his nickname is Marsh, and you'll hear me call him Marsh, because oh, I've known him for many years. Got it. I spoke at his conference, QED, in like 2012 or something. That's when I first met nice. him. But he runs the Merseyside Skeptics in the UK. He's also the project director of the Good Thinking Society and the editor of the Skeptic Magazine in the UK, president of the Merseyside Skeptics Society. Look at all these S words. I don't even like that word, and I'm just going to have to say it a million times in this episode. What does Michael Marshall do in his free time? Sounds like he's um, <laughs> just kind of uh, lays about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's he's a lazy shit. <laughs> um, he's a journalist as well. He has oh, okay, more for, stuff. Yeah, he's written for The Guardian, The Times, The New Scientist, New Statesman, whatever's new, he'll do it. If okay. you have new in the name of your project, <laughs> he'll he'll hop on. He also hosts the podcast I always think of when someone asks me what my favorite podcast is. Oh, it's nice. called Be Reasonable. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically if you just took our show, the episodes where we interview people with beliefs unlike ours. Which are some of just, my favorite episodes. I love them too. But if you just extracted those and listened to that, uh, it would be very similar to Be Reasonable. But I say that because I remember at one of our events, we had a like a sort of roundtable discussion for some attendees at one of the podcasting events a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And someone asked what our favorite podcasts were i don't yeah. know if you remember this moment but i was like oh that's so easy mine's okay my friend hosts it and it's <laughs> so good you couldn't and, think of the and, name and I, it is my actual fit it is my favorite podcast i'm and not lying it's and so everyone started tittering and then finally like i couldn't think of its name and so i started describing it and uh -huh. i was like well it's a lot like our show and everyone's like okay and like if you just took the interviews and i just watched a room full of people like scratch out what they had been writing down because <laughs> on our show those tend to be a little tougher a little oh, heavier lifting gotcha yeah but with Marsh's beautiful, soft British accent and genuine ways, it's really enjoyable to listen to. That's great. Brains are funny things. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Also, we should acknowledge that this week is Block Party. Yeah. This week and next week. That's right. The Max Fun Block Party. I think this is the first one what, ever. What? What, 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 what? It's a block party, party. without a block party because of in COVID. The party house we're also, we were uh -uh. only friends in the internet anyway. Please don't come to my block where I live. That would be really weird. <laughs> Carrie and I are dancing over here. It is only symbolic <laughs> this is a great time to meet new max fun shows uh, and there's a special thread that maximum fun is running just with favorite episodes from podcasts and a little bit of an intro kind of explaining what they are what they're all about so a good way to kind of sample what's there in the maximum fun family it's a very big family it is but well cultivated a yeah. big family a well big, cultivated <laughs> Boy, that sounds like a Norman Rockwell painting. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it sounds like, it immediately makes me think of like those, you know, nine-person Mormon families where it's like, <laughs> well, Kevin, of course, isn't here. And oh. then you're like, oh, Kevin, Kevin 
left he got the faith and, and got pruned. Yeah. Oh, well, that's dark. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be releasing one of our favorite investigations. It's kind of a, a single episode where you get to hear an entire investigation. It's not one of our uh, series next week with a little bit of fun introduction. Yeah. So if you are listening to this episode and you are a longtime Ona Ross and Carrie fan, first of all, thank you. We love you. And second of all, Next week will be a good time to introduce people to the show because Mm -hmm. you'll be able to sample this one little classic episode, but with a new little intro saying, and this is what we do with the show. So look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. But for right now, you get this interview with Michael Marshall. That's right. Here it is. Welcome, Michael Marshall. It's been a long time coming for you to be on Ono, Ross and Carrie. Uh, yeah, well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on. I feel like we've been doing similar things on opposite sides of uh, of the pond uh, for a while. So it felt like this was inevitable at some point that we would do some sort of collaboration. Yeah, the pond, of course, being Lake Erie here in the United States. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just in, I don't know, Chicago? Is that the other side of Lake yeah, Erie? My, well, my lake as, knowledge is very poor. As you can tell from Marsha's accent, he is from Detroit. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're over there in the UK. Uh, are you in? No, you're in Manchester. I was going to say London, but you're in the other spot. I'm, I'm in Liverpool, which which is oh, close right. enough from a, from a, an international perspective, but from a local perspective, is a very big difference that both Liverpool and Manchester would feel very acutely. But uh, I, I'm I'm kind of fortunately I'm I'm from neither of those places. I uh, I've lived in Liverpool for like, for 20 years, but I was uh, originally from the northeast, so I don't feel too strong the affiliation uh, to to feel offended by suggesting I'm uh, I'm a Mancunian. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I associate you with Manchester because you work with the Manchester Skeptics and ran or maybe still run their conference. I don't know if anyone runs a conference right now at the state of the world. But Yeah, uh, we're not sure whether we run a conference right now either. We we <laughs> are planning a conference, but whether it happens uh, at any point is very hard to say. But yeah, so we run QED, which is a, it started as a collaboration between the Manchester Skeptics and the Merseyside Skeptics, which I'm the, the president of. Um, but it kind of grew beyond that and ended up just being a bunch of people who were some affiliated to those groups, some not affiliated to any group who just felt like putting the, the conference on. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I will accept a Manchester affiliation uh, quite uh, quite easily. <laughs> what about the word skeptic? So you uh, the, you mentioned two groups that have the S word in it. I'm not a fan of the S word. I know that Ross doesn't mind it at all. How do you feel hmm. about it? I think it's I think it's useful. So I think as a group organizer, it's useful to have a word that allows people to gather around because it's very hard to say, oh, we're going to put on events and put on a conference that's about uh, and not have an uh for it. So I think as a label, it's useful like that. But what I what I always feel about the label is it's it's very important to remember that a, but being a skeptic should only ever be considered. I'm a skeptic and therefore I'm going to try as hard as possible to apply scientific skepticism and critical thinking to the things that I think and do. And I'm going to fail at that, but I'm going to fail less often <laughs> than than I would have done because I'm actively trying. I think it's once people start to see the label as an identity that I'm a skeptic and therefore I'm right, that they suddenly they very easily slide into, I'm a skeptic now, give me something to be right about. You know, point me at anything yeah. and I'll be right about that. But I, I'm quite happy to, to use the label for, for the stuff that I do. Um, I'm editor of The Skeptic in the UK, so if I eschewed the label too much it would be uh slightly tricky sure i yeah and i write occasionally for skeptical inquirer and for mm. some reason that title doesn't bother me as much because it's skeptical instead of yeah skeptic. you are a skeptical inquirer you are yeah, someone who's yeah. inquiring in a skeptical can't, fashion that's a description <laughs> i can't deny it i think you know this will lead into a little bit of what we're talking about here with your reporting i think my objection, and even objection feels like maybe too strong a word, but my, my distaste for the term is uh, kind of the flip side of what you're talking about. It is very useful to have a term around which you can organize, and that's looking at your own in-group. I think I naturally see everything from how does this look to the out-group, because it's the mm, out-group yeah. I'm trying to reach to. And so I always think, well... For every in-group, you have created an out-group for yourself. And mm, mm. How, how strongly do I want to label myself as like someone who already disagrees with the thing you think? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's sort of where my trouble is. Yeah, but, I can see that. But I'm not organizing conferences. So <laughs> if I were, I probably would be naming them things like the conference for people who think it's nice to talk about facts and no one would come. <laughs> so... 
Fair enough. So we're here largely to talk about the reporting you just did on a movement called the White Rose Movement. And Mm. uh, there are actually two movements by that name. So maybe you can tell us about the original group and then what this new group is. Yeah, so the original uh, White Rose uh, group was um, in Nazi Germany. It was uh, a group of essentially non-violent um, resistance movement. Uh, it was non-violent resistors to the Nazi uh, the Nazi regime. And what they would do as a group of students, so it was uh, led by uh, Hans Scholl and Alexander Schmorell and uh, Sophie Scholl, um, and they would hand out essentially uh, leaflets anonymously. They'd leave leaflets around which were criticising uh, the Nazi regime and, and trying to get people to question what they were seeing from their government at the time and and some of the the things that we now know were obviously awful that were going on at the time. And that White Rose, I think it lasted up until about 1939 when they were eventually uh, caught and, and they were executed. But that idea of anonymous, sort of semi-decentralized leafleting and graffiti and uh, and transmission of information in that kind of way is something that the modern white rose has has cottoned onto and has taken up as a way of resisting essentially public health measures during the pandemic. And so I don't know whether you've seen any of these uh, in uh, in the US, but it's an international movement now where you'll be walking down the street and the occasional lamppost will have a little sticker on it, and the sticker will say things like "There is." no pandemic or the media is the virus or your government is lying to you and uh, you know why would you do all these extraordinary measures to prevent yourself from getting a disease with a 99.9% recovery rate mm. and they put these little messages on the stickers that are designed to appeal to a gut level curiosity and people's kind of um, fears and insecurities and uncertainties in what is a very uncertain time but it's really trying to engender people to uh, deny the existence of COVID or to uh, to believe that the vaccine is a incredibly evil tool of the essentially new world order trying to control us and and all those other things that flow from there. So it is a movement of people who will download these stickers online and then just go into their local communities and graffiti anything they can stick a sticker to to try and wake the sheeple up and that's that's how I first came across them. It it sounds like it could be a combination of two things. One is a centralized community where people know they're part of this quote white rose movement and then probably some people people who just find the stickers and, and put them up, right? Well, no. So I, I think all the people who, the way that the movement works is that at the bottom of all the stickers, it's got a, it's got the address of a telegram channel. Mm. And so it's trying to say to people, look, if this sticker appeals to you, and if you think this makes sense, and it sounds like a good common sense uh, argument against the craziness that's going on in the, the government's handling of the pandemic, then join our telegram channel. And when you go there, the telegram channel is filled constantly with pictures of the stickers in places, and then instructions on how to go away and print your own stickers and to then put those stickers around. So I think the the stickers on the lampposts are a way of getting people to realise that the pandemic itself is a big con or whatever else they want to want you to, to question, then to, to lead you into the Telegram channel where you become part of the White Rose group, where you will then hopefully go on to stick your own stickers elsewhere and, uh, and proliferate and spread the movement from then. And I think that's why the movement has really grown, because it is at its heart designed to recruit more people who are going to go out and recruit more people to go out and recruit more people. So it kind of ends up sort of spreading in and putting its tendrils out there in that kind of way quite organically. Okay, not to focus on this small point, but it'll become important. So if I stopped someone on the street as they were putting one of these stickers up, you would think the odds would be good that that individual actually knows what White Rose is and is is involved online in it. Yeah, I think so. I think really the only place you can realistically get a, a pack of the stickers to put up in the first place is from being mm. in that Telegram channel. I oh, haven't seen okay. stickers just lying around. I've only ever seen them actually stuck. And so one of the, the, there's only two ways you can get the stickers that I'm aware of. So you're in the channel and you ask someone to mail you a bunch of stickers mm. or you meet someone who you know is in the channel and they give you a bunch of stickers or they give constant instructions on exactly which label printer to buy and exactly which label paper to buy and then how to download the, the zip file of all of the, the sticker designs and go away and actually just churn off a load of stickers yourself. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes it a lot clearer for me. And that's important because we're going to discover that your reporting uncovers some real messiness, <laughs> to mm. almost put it too charitably, in this group. So you saw one of these stickers and you said, by all means, I will join. Yes. And sort of act as a fly on the wall and see what's going on in these groups. So what did you find? 
Yeah, so I think I joined the White Rose initially in April, largely because, I mean, I'm like you. When I see a, an odd, unusual thing that uh, seems to be sort of um, going against what the mainstream thinks, I kind of want to be there to understand what draws people into it and what conversations are they having with themselves. Not what they would say to a reporter or somebody who says, I don't believe in what you're saying. Tell me all about it. I want to try and understand as much as possible. So I, I joined just to observe. And what I found, first of all, was the group itself the white rose the main white rose group is is really just there to put pictures of the stickers to say look how many people all around the world are doing this to really sort of g up the movement and say everybody's uh, out there doing this it's a really vibrant and you know we're rising up together the resistance is is growing strong and then to get other people to go in uh, download the stickers and and do their own stickering but every single time the group will post there'll be chat underneath where members of the white rose from around the world will start having their own conversations and in mm. there it's where you get to see people motivations and what they actually really think about the pandemic um so by studying kind of and spending a lot of time in that group and also the other thing the white rose does is um set up local chapter groups on telegram so you can have you can be in the white rose global group but then also the white rose merseyside group so i joined mm. that immediately for where i live to see exactly what's happening around uh, my local area and that is much more of a, a community of people who have lots of alternative beliefs, not just about the pandemic, although initially they'll talk a lot about the pandemic. And what you actually find is quite a quite a muddled view, really, because they'll at the same time, like early in the pandemic, they were adamant that the virus wasn't real, that they've just, I think even one of the stickers even says how to enforce the new world order, simply uh, relabel the flu and make everyone scared of it and then bring down everybody's lives to make sure that you don't uh, catch what we always catch all the time anyway. Mm. Uh, obviously, COVID-19 is not the flu. They're, they're very different right. viruses, very different symptom patterns and very different mortalities. So we have some people who don't even believe that uh, COVID-19 exists, but then we have others who say, well, it does exist, but it was released deliberately in order to get you to take the vaccine, which mm -hmm. was a fascinating take when I first joined because the vaccine wasn't really widely available. It, we hadn't actually been allowed to be vaccinated yet. Mm -hmm. And it struck me as very unusual, very, very interesting that people were absolutely adamant that COVID was a, a hoax designed to get you to take a vaccine so they could put a microchip or whatever in, which, which would come up quite frequently in the, the White Rose chat. Um, it struck me that it seems odd to release a pandemic virus or a hoax pandemic virus in February, January 2020 to get you to take a vaccine that they didn't make available until the end of that year, once everybody had kind of lived with the the, the COVID for a while. If, it, if you really were trying to just get everyone terrified into taking whatever vaccine they can get, you release the vaccine in June or May when people are at the height of their fear. Hmm. Um, yeah. But it was sort of... I get, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of on their side on this one. I guess I, <laughs> I'm thinking, well, it was already so fast that if it were any faster, that would seem awfully mm. suspicious. Yeah, although they still have their suspicion about the speed of it anyway. I don't think yeah, that their, their levels true. of suspicion is, is would be hugely changed by it. But you, you could be right there. So there are some who, who will see it at that the virus is real, but it's not that bad. Some will see, well, the virus is actually, it's fine. You can survive it if you just take other things. But you, mm. what you absolutely can't do is take the vaccine. But what I found is the more time you spend in the White Rose Telegram groups, the more other ideas would start to come up. Mm -hmm. And you'd see people essentially posting in the White Rose Telegram group from other channels and they'd post material that was pertinent to the discussion about COVID. So you'd see some people posting about how this person is explaining how she will not take the vaccine no matter what you do. But when you look at that channel, you see it's from a channel called Calling a Spade a Spade. Mm. And if you follow the link that they put at the bottom of that uh, post, you go through to the Calling a Spade a Spade channel and you find that, yes, they'll talk a bit about COVID now and then. But the rest of the stuff they talk about is out and out white supremacy mm. and how we need to uh, hold back against the Great Replacement and how we need to fight the Kalergy plan, which is the idea that we're going to be replaced by uh, by people of colour in, in largely white nations in, in order to subjugate uh, and erase the white race and things like that. And you very quickly get into very, very dicey territory. And in those groups, I think that idea of cross-posting uh, a COVID post from your white supremacy group, I think there's a, a level of deliberate attempt to recruit people there to say, look, I agree with you on COVID, so come over to my channel to find out more about what I think about COVID. And while I'm here, his several videos about how 
Jewish people are racist and really hate white people and want to eradicate the white race. And, and, and I think there's some degree of intentional recruitment going on there. And that's certainly what I saw a lot of the more time I spent in, in these unusual telegram groups. So then would it be fair to say that the White Rose itself doesn't necessarily have figureheads or leaders who are affiliated with these white supremacist groups, but rather that the White Rose is sort of a feeding ground of people who are in their worst fears, and Mm. then white supremacists can come in and capitalize on that. Yeah, I think so. I think the vast majority of people that I've that I've seen who join the White Rose sort of primarily because of their COVID fears and might even run local message groups for the for the White Rose chapters, they don't seem to me to be um, fully on board with some of the more extreme conspiracy groups, that, uh, conspiracy theories that we see posted in there. Um, I think they are just genuinely, genuinely grassroots fears and uh, uncertainties and stresses and, and things about uh, the pandemic. But I think once you know, once there is a move where you know there are 50,000, 100,000, however many hundreds of thousands of people around the world gathering here to already spread conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. I think it's no surprise that we see other more extremist groups seeing that reservoir of of paranoia and reservoir of of, of people looking for an alternative take on why the world is running the way it currently is. Mm -hmm. And they see that as, as fertile fishing ground. And I think that's what we're seeing partly, I think, maybe organically, because the people in some of these white supremacy channels genuinely think there is this great replacement happening and it's just another part of the another layer of the conspiracy and they just want to wake more people up for that conspiracy but also i think there's some overt and arguably cynical attempts to recruit people being done by people like um the the right-wing activist in the uk tommy robinson who's uh, a very well-known far-right activist he used to run the uh, the national front the edl and various other kind of uh, far-right organizations his channel appears in the white rose constantly posting some COVID stuff, some other stuff that's borderline and some stuff that just lean and hint towards some of these kind of more racist um, conspiracy theories. And I I don't think that is just an accidental cross-posting or a a meeting of minds. That feels to me like a much more over-attempt to recruit people and to grow an online presence. Do you think it's being successful? Do you have any sense of that? Are they pulling people from the White Rose into this white supremacist group? It's hard to say. So what I have certainly seen is the more time I've spent in the White Rose, the more time I've, uh, the more I've seen people repeating some of the the tropes around um, specific conspiracy theories. So the Great Replacement is one that comes up time and again. The idea that, you know, there are the elites trying to eradicate uh, whiteness by by having people mix uh, mix races and, and meet people from the races and, and have children, that kind of thing. That comes up an awful lot. And I've seen increasingly people talking about the Kalergi plan or the Kalergi plan, which is one of the official names of that Great Replacement theory based on uh, one of the guys who is the, one of the founders of the EU, um, a guy called Kalergi, who at one point wrote something that you could misinterpret as saying, we need to eradicate the white race. And he wasn't actually saying that at all. So they take something out of context and say, you see, this is what the elites were planning all along. Now, I see references to that particular plan come up more often now than I did when I first joined. Mm. One of the things I think might Mm. be uh, a play here is that the more time you spend in any kind of space, even if it's an online space, conversing with people where these ideas get a pass, even if people don't all believe in them, but these these ideas are just part of the conversation, the more they become normalised and the more you might start to think, well, it's maybe not as bad as that, mm-hmm. but it's certainly something. You know, that that's the fire, but there's definitely some smoke. I'm not saying it's going to be all that way, but we can't rule all this out. And that's why we start to see kind of the cross-pollination of, uh, of conspiracy theories into more more extreme positions. And I've seen that the more the more time I've spent around conspiracy theorists generally. Um, and I don't know whether you've seen similar kind of things, really. I suppose I have, but I, I admit that immediately brings up my own defenses because one of my one of my dearest values, and I know it's one of yours as well, is to talk to people whose views I find unlikely. On on Mm. one end and abhorrent on the other end and to still Mm. treat those views as like views a human being genuinely has and probably has reasons for and I'm going to Mm. sit here and I'm going to listen and I'm going to try to go in my mind to where they are emotionally that this makes sense to them. And so that's such a strong value to me that I really smart at any suggestion that we should cut discussions out And Mm. I also see (laughs) that the flip side of that is that you invite these conversations in and they win some people over. 
Yeah, yeah. So how do you square that? I, I have great difficulty with, with those two values. Yeah, I, I, I do too. I, I really do. And I think it depends uh, It depends on what space we're in. So when it comes to something like the, the Telegram groups, I think the fact that they are, I'd say, unmoderated, they're notionally moderated, but the only time I've ever seen any moderation, it's something I mentioned in one of the, the pieces that I wrote for the for the skeptic about it. Um, somebody got called out for using racist language. Mm. Now, I see a lot of racist language being used there towards people of colour, to, especially towards Jewish people as well. Mm. And the racist language specifically that was called out was when somebody looked at a, a, a group of people who met at a far right rally and said, I see a lot of gammons there. And gammons is a term that took on that uh, that caught on in the UK a while ago for your essentially angry, pink faced sort of um, white person who is just like aggressively angry and uh, you know shouting mm. about how awful the world is, and to the point that they've gone ruddy in the face. Okay. And so it's not a great term, and it's not a term that I would use. But I thought it was mm. curious that the only time anybody got told off for saying anything at all was when they used a term that was perceived as being racist against white people, but oh, not right. against any anything else. So mm. I think this is a notionally, it's only a notionally moderated space. It's functionally unmoderated, I'd say. And part of the the problem with that is you will get people who will recognise that a lot of the people there, I totally agree with you, they're people who are human beings, they arrived at their opinions for for reasons that are that make sense to them and we have to listen and try to understand their journey through that. Nobody uh, came to, to be uh, an anti-vaxxer because they're evil and they want to kill people. They think they're actually doing some good, they think they're protecting people and we need to hear that uh, before we tell before we find out how to encourage more people to get vaccinated. We need to understand those fears. But I think because those people in, in these spaces that I've seen having these conversations, they did get there because of things that have been happening in their lives. And a lot of those things might be kind of, they're finding everything really stressful. They're finding the, the, a lot of uncertainty. Their businesses might have shut down because of, uh, because of the pandemic and things have to shut. And people are under a huge amount of stress. We know that when people are in those kind of incredibly stressful positions, they will psychologically look for scapegoats or they'll mm-hmm. be more likely to follow people who are pointing at scapegoats. Yeah. And I think in that in that case, it's it's really difficult to be in an un- unmoderated space where there is so, mm-hmm. uh, even a very few, a small number of people who will happily shout out what scapegoats we should, uh, we should be trying to bring God. down and <laughs> holding it against, you know, I yeah. think. It's going to persuade some people who would otherwise maybe never have gotten there, but the the consequence of their circumstances and then their exposure to certain ideas or certain uh, materials will drive them in a direction that they may ne- never otherwise have gone. And, and I think there's, mm-hmm. the, that's that's not something we can just sit back and say, well, you know, freedom of speech, we need to just let everything right. lie. Because when we do that, it's it's rarely, I mean, I'm a straight white guy, it's rarely me who gets the brunt of, of that kind yep. of unmoderated freedom of speech. Yep. No, yeah, I totally agree. And, I, and, and that's become more and more apparent here in the US, you know, in the last five years, that uh, this value of freedom of speech, while very important, also has this dark underbelly. And it mm. seems like it's um, it's a, it's obviously a very, very important value. And it's only as strong as the critics in the room, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it sounds like in this particular room, you have maybe one critic and by virtue of his job, he needs to not speak. <laughs> so uh, that's that's obviously a messy situation. Uh, speaking of which, did you ever interact with them or were you just sort of watching the whole time? Uh, I did. I did interact. There were times. So I was in there for a long time. And so there'd be times when it'd be you've seen you spent a, a day sort of dipping in and out and you've been exposed to quite a lot of horrible stuff. And occasionally you just think, OK, this bit is not pandemic related. This is just beyond the pale. And I'm just going to be like, come on, that's just silly. <laughs> or, or there were other occasions where one thing that went around that wasn't harmful particularly at all and wasn't uh, wasn't you know disgusting at all. But um, there was the idea that the vaccines would make you magnetic, and occasionally yes. I don't know if you saw those kind of things. You know, mm-hmm. people putting spoons on their arm. I ended up putting magnets on Ross. Yep. Yeah, lovely. Well, I I would occasionally say, well, hang on, I'm not sure this makes a lot of sense because if you look, this person's just sort of leaning back and quite smooth and they weren't even injected in, in that particular area. And how much would you really have to inject into someone to have a magnetic strength to hold up an entire metal spoon mm-hmm. for, from such a small... That seems odd. And I was trying to play it as a, like, without necessarily saying, I don't believe in any of this, but to say it is possible to believe in, to not believe some of this, but also to, to draw a line here and to see what would happen. And what I found was interesting was some people will be like yeah you're right this is silly 
but they would wait for me to be the one to call something out. So there's just not a, uh, a, a culture right. in that room of anybody calling out anything that is beyond the pale or that is uh, illogical or that doesn't make sense. It's it's essentially what I've seen with lots of other conspiracy groups that have been around, I've spent some, some time around the flat earth community. When you're in that place, if somebody brings up something that is off the beaten track, it passes. It's it's we're yeah. all we're all against the mainstream together, and it doesn't matter what flavor of right you are, as long as you're not one of the wrong ones. You know, we can all be uh, against the mainstream in lots of different ways. But I think again, what that ends up doing is fostering a culture and a community where it not only attracts people with lots of different ideas, but then it, it will spread those ideas around the community to a point where more people will come to believe uh, an amalgamation of many of these different ideas, rather than just come in. You know, I joined because I don't believe that COVID is real or I joined the flat earth movement because I don't believe the, the world is flat. Before you know it, you can be in a place where you also believe there's a new world order and signs of Satan everywhere. And and actually, you know, there's there's some other pretty grim things going on in, in the world that we need to be uh, need to be cautious of. I've met a lot of flat earthers. I haven't met many who'd been a flat earther for a while and still believe the Holocaust happened. I don't think there's a direct causal relationship, but I think there's a cultural transmission of these ideas that you become, become spread around a community just from the dint of being in that community long enough and being exposed to them. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think that if you start to believe that the earth is flat, it requires believing your government is lying to you on such a level that, of course, you start questioning other things that are hard to see with your own eyes, and that will include mm. deep history. Not that the Holocaust yeah. is even that deep, but, no. <laughs> but at least it's out of reach for our generation. Yeah, and that's what we see with COVID, because if the virus isn't real, well, then mm. the government is lying to us, and then we get into that whole thing again. If the vaccines really are evil, well, then all the governments are lying to us, and we get into that whole thing again. So once, you, once you're given permission to, to believe uh, there is uh, a massive conspiracy against you by the quote-unquote elites, you very quickly get invited to find out who those elites are. And uh, unfortunately, when you do that, a lot of the time, there's a, a long history of people um, ascribing personalities and religions to those elites. And you go back and start dipping into that that deep, deep well of, uh, yeah. of culture and law there. Yes. Uh, I assume we're speaking of the Jews. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in the uh, in the the White Rose, not just the White Rose, but the, the places that are adjacent to the White Rose. That where they'll post into the White Rose and then convince you to to join their channel, or they'll automatically add you to their channel. That was something uh, I, I I didn't expect, but yeah, some people just oh, say, right. "Well, you're in here, so we're going to add you to this one," and you can oh, you can right. choose to leave, but you're already in now. And I think a oh, lot of people yeah. accumulate uh, channels that way. Which then doubles that danger you were speaking of, of sort of finding yourself in one of these spaces without any meaningful criticism and then being added to new ones without you even knowing it. Mm. Goodness. I think there's also, there's another another almost magnifying effect as well, because... Mm. If if you've got your Telegram set up to send you notifications whenever you know there's a message in your White Rose channel, if you're in one channel, you'll see notifications now and then. But if you're in multiple channels, you're going to see many more notifications, which means you're going to spend a lot more time in Telegram, which means you're going to spend a lot more time around those conversations, not necessarily having, therefore, conversations in other spaces with people who aren't conspiracy theorists, and you become sort of nudged along the path to radicalization through repeated exposure and time spent. So the more channels you're in, the more that magnifies the time that you're spending engaging with this material yeah yeah definitely and then someone else has this additional control over where you're spending your time that you don't even realize mm. they have yeah yeah well hey there uh carrie and um, michael is oh, it ross you have been so quiet throughout this conversation i'm just completely focused on what you're saying yeah okay it's fair enough fantastic great points are being made <laughs> i'm really enjoying this but Thank you. but i think it's important that we stop to talk about fun games that you can play on your phone okay yeah i don't know this felt like kind of deep important material are, but okay wait are you saying that i've not been paying as good of attention as i thought i was <laughs> you know it's hard to say i have been playing on my phone yeah which that, might be a problem that's fair well you know what let's get this out of your system so what were you gonna <laughs> say about your phone it's the only way this is gonna continue <laughs> well i have this great game called best fiends oh you tell me about this a lot but go ahead oh have i told you about it before yeah. all right well <laughs> It's a colorful puzzle-solving game. It's free to download. Okay. Millions of people have. Really? O over 100 million downloads. Whoa, that's a lot of downloads. You can play it even offline. But what it is, like I said, it's a puzzle game. So you, you navigate this world, this infinitely scrolling world. I'm not sure what the shape of this world is, but it's not mm. flat. Mm -mm. Not much is clear. Yeah, it looks like kind of tire-shaped. Right, but like... 
when you get to the other side of the tire, it's not the same as where you started. Right. And you're like, what? This tire keeps regenerating itself. Right. Well, you go through all these different lands and you solve levels, which involve connecting similar shapes. But those, those puzzles where it's like, get this next to this, they'll disappear. Yeah, yeah. And that make a, a linked chain. But then there's all these additional elements and you collect bugs that help Ooh. you defeat the slugs. Okay. And that's how you make your way through the world. And the bugs are really cute. Yeah. And the slugs big, are... Big eyes. They're cute, but they're enemies. So uh, I am currently on level 2,517. Wow. That's so many levels. That's a lot, a lot of levels. What's the maximum? They keep adding more, but I want to say there's like over 4,000 now. Wow. I could okay. be wrong, but I've spent many hours playing this game and there are more hours to come. Uh, I enjoy doing it while watching a TV show with my wife yeah. or, or a movie or... Interviewing a journalist from the UK but keeping quiet right well yeah. you, you had it you like yeah. you were doing such a no, good you're job right. you're right why would i interrupt or uh or while listening to an audiobook because it's one of those things that doesn't involve the language center of the brain right so okay. you can kind of truly multitask uh, depending on what you're doing nice so uh so yeah you're what not- if i'm trying though to like nail a board to another board and paint something on it and then also do this game nope that okay. won't work because your right. hands will be occupied. Okay, so. so there's the limitation and it's the only limitation. There you go. But, you know, with your phone on you, you always have something fun to do. And also you can add me as a friend, Ooh. not a fiend, a friend within Best Fiends. Uh, <laughs> so my friend ID is 2350912. So you can add me and uh, then we can be friends and you can see our progress and you can pass me up and be like, oh, I beat <laughs> Ross and I'm so proud of myself. Yeah, good for you. Wow. Good for you. That'll be you, listener. No, I'll actually be very proud of you. I believe there's like actual storylines. Uh, storylines for different holidays. So they're always kind of ready huh. with the next season coming up. So there'll be like Ooh, a- Ooh, is there Halloween now? Right now it's a Wonderland theme. Okay. Cute. So you can see there's like the little oh, yeah. the little uh, bunny with the clock and there's a Mad Hatter. So yeah, right now we're playing that, but I'm pretty sure we'll go into some kind of Halloween mode soon. Oh man. Yeah, that gives me great spring vibes though. Totally. Oh yeah, you love spring vibes and colors. Yep. So download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Well, if you're going to take that R out of Best Fiends, why don't you put it in your shoe? Oh, okay. Tell me a shoe company that starts with R. Rothy's? You got it. I knew that if I just looked down at my feet at Mm -hmm. these cute shoes, (laughs) the answer would come to me. And in fact, I do own an adorable pair of Rothy's shoes and you own some Rothy's now. That's right. I got my RS01 sneakers, which is short for Ross sneaker. I think you identified. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Which is correct. Yeah. And they're, they're fun to show off. They're a good conversation piece. They're comfortable to wear. But when I'm hanging out with friends, I'll be like, hey, guess what? These are Rothy's shoes. Yeah. I'll be like, oh, cool. I, and then either I've heard about them or tell me more. And, you know, fall's coming in. It's time to get new shoes. If you don't have shoes that you like that can keep the weather out and keep mm-hmm. the comfort in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. And from their best-selling round and pointed toe flats to sneakers made for any adventure and loafers. Rothy's has everything you need to start fall on the right foot. And I've been wearing them a fair amount since I bought them. I remember I talked about them last time we talked about Rothy's and they haven't gotten dirty enough yet for me to wash them. Oh, Right. I'm really excited to throw them in the wash yeah. and make them clean again. I just need to walk through more puddles. Yeah. So one of the selling points of Rothy's is that they are really durable. You can throw them in the washing machine. They come out pretty, pretty spanking clean. But they are also just sort of weather endurant in general. So you're probably experiencing... You know, something that's actually good about the shoe that means you have to wait. And very comfortable, very soft. You'd never guess it used to be a water bottle. Yeah, you might not feel like wearing a water bottle on your shoe until you do it, and then you're like, boy, howdy, I'm never going back. Don't knock it till you try it. Mm -hmm. And Rothy's now sells unisex sneakers and driving loafers. Mm -hmm. These all have the same level of craftsmanship that you were already used to if you uh, were already trying their ladies' line. Absolutely. And to help you welcome the fall season in style, Rothy's is doing something special. That's right. They gave us the chance to share this super rare opportunity with our listeners for a limited time. Okay, so listen up. Right now, you can get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash oh no. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash O-H-N-O. So head to rothys.com slash oh no to find your new favorites today. All right, I'll let you 
talk again, Michael. Okay, thank you. I'll go back to my, my game. Well, there's an irony that we must point out here, which is a group with anti-Semitic themes calling itself the White Rose Movement seems particularly out of touch at best, disgusting at worst. Yes, and that does come up occasionally in the White Rose chat. And I think in one of the articles I wrote for The Skeptic, I, I actually showed some screenshots of that conversation happening where somebody said, well, yes, you can say that, but you've got to bear in mind the White Rose uh, in Germany were all over and done with by 1939. It's like, yes, but by because over and done with... Because they were killed. You mean executed by the Nazi government. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like, oh, they just packed up and gone home. It's like they <laughs> they very much were victims of what was going on at the time. And there was a, there was a fascinating conversation uh, that that went on in there where people said, well, even if you do believe that the Holocaust happened, then you can look at you know the the White Rose over and done with. And somebody said, yes, I think you're a. a t-, they replied to that person saying, oh, you're such a, a breath of fresh air in this group because people are, are too quick to overly politicize Hitler's memory. It's like, oh no, no, no. Yeah, don't don't no, politicize no. Hitler. It's not. You, you want to keep keep the politics out of your Hitler. <laughs> it's not. It's not a thing. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, what do you yeah. want to talk about is paintings? What, what, <laughs> exactly, what alternative yeah. were they proposing? Style icon? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's extraordinary. This reminds me of a story my parents always used to tell when I was a child that they had this friend. I still remember his name. I never met him, but he was just this character in my childhood whose <laughs> fables got told my entire childhood. But his name was John. I won't say his last name. And apparently mm. John one time at dinner had had a few drinks and said, uh, you know, no one ever talks about the good things Hitler did. And and my <laughs> and my parents, of course, were aghast at this comment and, and would repeat it like what an insane thing to say. And looking back, I always wish I had been there because I wish I well, not when I was six, but but I mm. wish I today, 38 year old Carrie could be there and say, OK, hang on. John. <laughs> yeah. what, what do you mean? What are some of the good things for two reasons? One is that he may have been making some awful point, mm. like actually some of the things we already know about Hitler that you might think are disgusting or actually wonderful. If he meant that, then John is a person we really need to talk to and redirect. Or he may have meant something like Hitler could come again. And when when someone like that comes again, we need to know what is appealing about them to people. What are the quote unquote good things about them? So that when, say, I don't know, a U.S. president has similar qualities. Yeah. We don't say to ourselves like, oh, well, I would spot another Hitler because <laughs> I know about Hitler. He's evil. All I have to look for is evil. And it's like, no, no, you no, need to no, look for some very yeah. appealing qualities as well because that's what sold him. It's hard not to see hear that as an enormously charitable way of interpreting Because <laughs> <laughs> even if that was the point yeah. you were making, I don't think you'd open that point by saying all the good things Hitler did. You could say yeah. all the the qualities that were so attractive about Hitler or all the reasons people supported Hitler. But yeah, the, totally. the good things, I'm not as sure that I could know. be what he's on about. <laughs> I know, I know. I, this, I will admit, this is the thing of which I am often criticized and I will accept the criticism is that I'm always looking for this, right? I'm always looking for like, what what might they have meant that they said in a very clumsy way? And totally possible because I wasn't there that he meant the awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the in a similar vein, so you host a podcast that I love called Be Reasonable, that mm. I feel is very similar to what we do in that you're always listening to people who have very different views from yours. Flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, people who think the Mandela effect is a genuine phenomenon where there are parallel time tracks. Yeah. Those are just a few examples I've heard recently. (laughs) And I think you have a similar philosophy, which is like, well, let's hear this out. But let's also be prepared at every stop to do the socially awkward thing, which is to challenge it, even in this friendly conversation. Mm. Uh, So I guess first, would you agree with that characterization of the show? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the reasons that I like your show so much is is I agree, it feels like it's coming from um, a similar place sort of philosophically or or, uh, humanistically, that I think... It's very easy, especially as someone who does use the label sceptic and hangs around with lots of people who uh, use the label sceptic very, very happily. It's very easy to see the people we disagree with as caricatures and just a collection of their worst ideas mm. and uh, and say, well, you know, like anti-vaxxers, for example, it's very easy to say, well, you're an anti-vaxxer, um, so you're killing kids, you're responsible for the deaths of children and you're an evil monster. And it's like, well, we can, we can say that, but I don't think they really 
are intending to kill kids. So if we never actually hear what they do think and uh, and what uh, what their, their thought processes are, we never see them as a whole human being, which means they're beyond uh, reach for any kind of conversation we might be we might be having with them. They're beyond reach for, for dragging back from that uh, that brink. If you never have a conversation with somebody, you can't ever uh, start to persuade them to, to sense check. Um, but also if we, if we never have that conversation where we hear what's persuasive, because we assume we know everything about their position. Mm-hmm. When we talk to somebody who could be persuaded by the, the, these anti-vaxxers, for example, we don't have the ammunition to to counter some of the rhetoric or to, mm-hmm. to counter some of the points that they're making because we've never heard those points. So I think it's really important to, to listen to them to say these people, are a lot of, a lot of these ideas are spreading because people get persuaded of them and convinced of them. We need to hear what's so persuasive so we can then sit and think about it and think, well, hang on, what if I actually am wrong about this? It's important for me to be able to countenance the idea that I'm incorrect about this. So I need to hear what's persuasive to make sure that I, I still hold the beliefs that I hold once I've uh, once the persuasion has uh, has had its uh, had its uh, attempts on me. But then once I've heard it, I can think, well, the reason I'm not persuaded by that is for this reason, which means the next time I meet someone who say they are persuaded by that idea, I now already have an advance, have done the thinking that allows me to get to the bottom of that uh, that point. So I think there's, there's, yeah, there's lots of reasons that I do it. I think it's important to carry on seeing people as human, even when they hold ideas that are objectionable and even abhorrent, they're still human beings. That's not to excuse them, but I think it's, it, it in a way, it sort of does excuse people by writing them off as monsters. Why would someone think that, oh, they're a monster, so monsters think that, the end. It, it sort of misses all the complications and complexity of of human psychology and uh, and and how we actually move around the world. So yeah, that's that's what I'm doing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, you're making me think of the false attribution error, which is this psychological mechanism where when we don't kind of understand where someone's coming from, we skip past all the things like environment and evidence and argument straight to motivation. Well. Hmm. They do this because they're hateful. Well, they believe that because they're dumb. They, you know, mm. just these these very sort of thought stopping cliches. And it seems like your show is about sort of turning off that part in your own brain and saying like that might be true. I don't know, but that's not the axis on which I'm ever going to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just to, to still keep having the conversation. And I think there's there is another value to it as well. I think in that I think a lot of the people that I'll talk to, I might be the only skeptic they've had ever had a proper conversation with mm-hmm. for, for lots of them so they'll just mm-hmm. see in, in the same way that we'll write them off as oh you're an anti-vaxxer so you're a, a, mon- a baby killing monster and I'll never have a proper conversation with you I'll just shout slogans at you from across the street as you're holding your placards um, <laughs> by having those conversations you're at the same time as that happening they don't think sceptics are good people because they mm-hmm. often won't have had many conversations with sceptics they'll just be saying well you're just trying to inject our kids with stuff you're a monster but if they can come away from a conversation with me even though I don't think I've persuaded the vast majority, if any, of the guests on the show, I think uh, that to, to change their mind, I think they will come away thinking, well, that person didn't agree with me, but wasn't arrogant, wasn't dismissive, wasn't uh, on a pompous on a high horse, wasn't a monster, wasn't a, a this immoral, unethical uh, being that I've been told to expect them to be. So maybe skeptics aren't all the caricature that we've been given, and maybe I should think about that as well. So I think there's a, there's a way of softening the ground to to bring some of these people towards sense checking I think yeah and that's a really long game approach which I think can be hard when you are producing something that people are going to listen to tomorrow is knowing you might just be handing this guy to the next person you might just be softening him up as you put it or planting a seed so that the next person who's willing to do this long haul work has a little less work to do Mm. but then you release the conversation tomorrow and to some people it sounds like oh he didn't stand up enough to this guy and i and we you know not often but we do get that that critique do you get that critique of like you're platforming this person making their views seem valid uh and then in certain cases you didn't criticize them to my satisfaction yes yeah no i I do and i I think when it comes to the failure the perceived failure to criticize to the degree that the the listener would want often that's because what they want is for me to pick up on every single thing they say that's wrong Mm -hmm. but I, I don't do that for a couple of reasons. One, because it would just not be a conversation at all. If I just picked up on every <laughs> yeah. single thing, so, I'm sorry, you're wrong about that. You're wrong about that. It would just be a series of interjections. And we've heard that before. That's what a lot of conversations between people mm-hmm. who, who we disagree with and sceptics turn out to be, is the sceptic going wrong, 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 and, and stopping at every point. But yeah. the other reason I don't do it is a lot of the time I'm trying to get to 
more of a, a sense of who the person is and what motivates them and what brought them in there. And, and some of the some of the interviews that I'm, I'm sort of most proud of on there is where we get a sense of what was going on in the person's life when they came into these ideas or how these ideas fit into their broader worldview or their broader sense of self and sense of identity and value. And to get to that more nuanced position, we need to let some of the small yep. factual errors go because we need to build a rapport so that later I can ask a question that's a bit more challenging. You can't go in with a challenging question early doors because nobody will carry on the conversation at that point. You're setting a very different tone. So I do get that criticism. And I think that's how I defend my ideas against that criticism. Now, maybe that's not a very good defence, but I'm, but that's, that's, the, that's the one that sticks with me. But when it comes to platforming, I feel a little less worried about the platforming of it, partly because it isn't Joe Rogan's show. <laughs> the numbers are not John Rogan. <laughs> the, the, it, it's not a show that's that's got a wildly large listenership, um, partly because the people who love it most come up to me and say, I love your show so much, I can't listen to a whole episode. I can't make it through a whole episode. <laughs> I can't get to the end. So that's that's not a great marketing strategy to make a, a, a show that even your fans can't listen to. Um, <laughs> But also when it comes to, you know, you're platforming this idea, it's like, well, I am, but what platform is it? Because this is the platform mm. that I also, they're sharing the platform with the person who believes that pterosaurs are still flying around in America today and that we can live without food or water. Um, we can live on prana and light from the, and energy from the air alone. Or that in 15th mm. century Surrey, two children emerged from a cave with completely green skin because they were alien hybrids sent back in time from the future. Um, mm-hmm. and I believe I'm that quite, one. Well, absolutely, yeah. So I talk to guests that are real. No, but I'm, I'm quite happy to put... I'd, I'd interview Andrew Wakefield on that platform because mm-hmm. I don't think there's any danger. People go into the show going to be reasonable thinking, well, Marsh already thinks the person on here is wrong about something. Mm-hmm. So let's go and hear what we think they're wrong about. So mm-hmm. the kind of the framing of it is... I disagree with this person and I think they're wrong about these things. And I mm-hmm. wouldn't, because on my show, I don't talk to people I agree with ever. Then the platform is only, here's someone who I think is wrong and let's let's explore why and how they're wrong. When you say you don't talk to people you agree with ever, you mean agree with on that central point. You're always looking for... Yeah for access I, I would, agreement. Yeah, what I mean is I'd never have a, a conversation like this where you and I are broadly <laughs> speaking on the same sides of things and we're going to be talking about our work looking at the other side. I, I don't right. talk to people who are on my side in yeah. that kind of way. I talk to people who are on the other side of whatever issue we're talking about. So it feels then that the platform is is sort of by its nature kind of more of a, an isolated spotlight or under a microscope to, to examine than it is let's genuinely hear and some of our list. If I genuinely thought my listeners were prone to being persuaded by lots of the ideas I was platforming I'd really think hard about uh, how I do the show but I'm yet to find any listener who, who said to me I completely agreed with everything I, I normally listen to all your shows and I completely agree with everything your last guest just said right yeah that's the real question is are you uh, quote unquote platforming this person beyond their existing reach and sort of winning them new converts yeah yeah and I would say I, I feel pretty much the same way you do, but it does also come with this enormous burden of every single interview then has to be judged in part on the strength of your rebuttals, on, on how mm. you handled that exact interview and not necessarily on the complete body of work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and I find that is that is a challenge uh, and it's something I do sort of wrestle with because one thing I don't, there's a couple of things I don't do on the show. One is I don't edit. Um, mm. because I really don't want the guest to be able to say, well, actually, I answered yeah. that question differently and you've, you've cut that up, which means yeah. I can't then edit anything I've got wrong. And if I look like <laughs> right. an idiot, then then I've just got to live with that, uh, which I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with. But the other thing I don't do is I don't editorialise either side. So I don't say, OK, mm. that interview's finished, you know, the person's gone, and here's a 20-minute monologue from me explaining why they're wrong about everything, because I, I also don't think that's fair to okay. then be putting forward criticisms and uh, critiques and rebuttals that they're not there to hear and answer back to. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some times that I, I think that's been a challenging policy to have. And there's times that I've thought, actually, maybe th- this particular claim is so bad or so far out there that I really need to take a look at that. But I, I, that's still the policy that I, that I hold. I think if I do it consistently, then I think it sends, it, it sets the right, it sets the same tone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I, I've thought, because we sometimes do that. We sometimes will add these sort of codas at the end of ours or at the beginning. 
Um, and sometimes that has to do with legal advice. But but other mm. times, yeah, I'll think the same thing and often shoot an email to that person and say, hey, I'm going to say this. And usually by then, they're not that enthused to get my emails. So that's mm. kind of the end of that conversation. <laughs> but, but no, I totally get that. And there is a power that the person giving the interview, producing the show and releasing the show will always have that is an imbalance. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I, tr- I try to to subvert that balance essentially. In, in that, um, I anything I can't do on the fly in the moment, it, it doesn't get done. But mm-hmm. I think, in a way, what I'm what I'm trying to illustrate is that by not letting every by not picking up every single fact, I'm not trying to say this is a comprehensive de- uh, rebuttal and a comprehensive debunk of everything they're saying. I'm I'm more trying to illustrate how we can have conversations with mm-hmm. people we disagree with and work our way through that and maybe we won't get every single thing right but we'll we'll try to be as 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 good as we can as as we go it's it's uh yeah it's a slightly odd it's an odd space to be in I think <laughs> Oh it's so great though I mean it's one of my favorite shows when I talk about when people ask me like well what are your favorite podcasts uh, well, first of all, my mind goes completely blank and I think, I don't yeah. listen to any podcasts. I don't think I know any <laughs> podcasts. Oh my God, I need to listen to more podcasts. And then some start popping in. But yours is always one of, I'd say, the first four that comes to mind after that mind blank. Mm, okay, <laughs> I remember nice. like, wait, no, I like some podcasts. Here's one. Um, but at a podcasting festival two, three years ago, Ross and I had an FAQ session with maybe 20, 30 listeners and someone asked my favorite podcast. And I said, oh, that's so easy. It's, and then the name of your show <laughs> flew back to its origins of the UK. And I sat in front of the microphone, my mouth agape. I was like, it's so good. It's so good. You guys. <laughs> oh, you're going to love it. It's my friend hosts it. His yeah. name's Marsh. I know his name. It's Marsh. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, a, it's a monthly wrong person hour. Yeah, that's it's you'll know the one. Yeah. <laughs> but then I so everyone's writing it down, and I said, um, it's like if you took our show, but it was just the interviews, and then there was this murmur as a few people crossed it out. <laughs> no thanks, ma'am. So all the hardest stuff to listen to. Okay, but I I love it. I can't get enough of that stuff. But I think that part of it is that I. And I know Ross shares this quality as well. I sort of like being uncomfortable. Mm. I find that that's where like the action is. If I'm uncomfortable listening to something, then something's happening. Like there's yeah, there's yeah. something I need to face or there's something I need to deal with or there's something in this world that I need to fight or or grapple with. And I, I guess I don't find it uncomfortable to be uncomfortable. Mm. Do you feel the same way? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Especially when, when I, when it comes to doing the show, there are moments that are incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I, I find those moments are the ones that are quite exciting. Well, there's two types of discomfort. There's one where they've said something that I can't quite figure out how to, to get to the bottom of or to offer a, a, a rebuttal or a challenge or some kind of, some kind of counterpoint that allows us to carry on without them thinking, well, I've just got that point entirely past. You know, where you, mm. one of the, one of the things you have to do on the show, uh, one of the things I have to do on the show is, when someone makes a point, you have to kind of pass what that point means through whatever language they've used for it. Try to understand where the the, the gap or the the um the space where logic should have been. If there's a, a, a an element missing in there, you know what's wrong with what they've just said and why doesn't it make sense? Find a counter argument to it and then pass that back through polite language on the fly without breaking conversation. And I find that quite can be quite a, an uncomfortable thing to be doing when that. Uh, that process breaks down and you can't kickstart it through without without yourself stopping speaking. But then the other side of it that gets uncomfortable is when the guest finds one of my questions more of a challenge than they were expecting. Mm-hmm. And I find that quite an exciting uh, discomfort. And I've, and I've done that with quite a few guests in, in ways that I've been really, really quite happy about is where because I've spent the time building rapport early on and I've not challenged on, on everything and because I've tried to stay respectable and, and tried to stay kind of um, friendly and polite, they're, they're quite happy to be, to be walked around their ideas and to, sort of guided around their ideas a little bit by me. And occasionally if you are guiding someone around their ideas rather than explaining to you what, you what they think, you're asking little questions that just look down that left turn over there and that little corner around there. You can get someone to turn a corner in the maze of their mind that they didn't know was there and then they're confronted with a brick wall that they just did not know was there and then there's mm. the silence where they try to understand 
what that wall is in their logic, how they've suddenly mm. found this point where they don't know where they are. And the mm. time that was most uncomfortable, I, I won't say which which guest it was, because I think it would be unfair, but it's one of the only times I've actually edited the show ever, I think. It's where I asked a question of the guest and I expected them to come back with one of a list of answers that I've seen from people who agree with similar kind of things in the past and they'll, they'll have sort of counter arguments. But instead I was sort of left with them just silent for about a minute while they tried to figure out what I would, how how they could continue holding their view based on the bit of the conversation we just got to and the and the the, mm. the the way that we'd the conversation had gone, and it was so uncomfortable just the silence of them struggling in that moment mm. with trying to reconcile their existing viewpoint with what with where the conversation had gone and where they'd gone along with it that I had to cut some of that for their to spare their blushes because a minute or a minute and a half of silence would have just been excruciating to, to sit through. Uh, but you left some of it in then. I did leave some of it in, yes. That's good, yeah. Uh, I think silence is really beautiful in radio because it's so powerful. But I, I hear mm. you, 90 seconds, someone is is assuming that their podcasting app is not working at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, now, it's interesting, though, you say in that moment they had hit this wall and they realized they kind of can't square their prior philosophy with some other elements of your conversation that they've already agreed with. Well, let me ask you this. How do you know that? Did they then admit that to you or is that you sort Sort of internally editorializing on what the silence means. Uh, it's it's the latter of those. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't know how much to say about the the interview without giving it away too mm. much. But I, I asked somebody for for a justification of their their um, their viewpoints and expected them to come back with a set list of of justifications I've heard from lots of the places. And what I got instead was just a long silence before they then started scrabbling around for a piece of paper that uh, their brother had once written some uh, some details on um, as to how to explain it. And in that moment, I was like, well, this is you not being able to. To, to mm. reconcile it because you're looking for even what someone else has given you previously but your life is pretty much heavily determined or heavily based around your commitment to this idea but in this moment just asking you what would be a, a fairly simple question about the, the foundation of this idea you didn't have anything there and mm. that's in that in, in that conversation it made me think well hang on what I thought was the foundation or what anybody who looked at this person would have thought was the foundation of their beliefs. It's not that. And maybe we should start exploring what else is going on in your life and what else was going on in your life when you came across these ideas to see if we can figure out what else is, was actually at, uh, at play in those beliefs. Well, I'm sure people are listening to this right now and very mad that you won't say who it is. So let me just say, at the end of this interview, I'll ask you for three recent episodes people might love to listen to and maybe just think ahead about which three to include. <laughs> just, just putting that yes. out there. Absolutely, yeah. I asked you that question because we did an interview with a flat earther named Jaron Campanella. And Jaron and I actually, I would say, became friends. We text quite a bit. But there was a moment where he asked me a question and I was processing the question and I, I kind of didn't quite know exactly what he was asking. And so I, I silently like thought about it and he jumped in and said, Carrie, that feeling that you're feeling right now, that's cognitive dissonance and that should trouble you. And I was like, Jesus, I'm trying to be a good conversationalist and actually process what you're asking me. So it does sound like in this example, it's probably fairly evident in the audio and the listening, but... You know, yeah. keep keep in mind we we can't you know we can't uh, hear each other's thoughts. No, that's exactly true. Uh, unlike what many of my guests think, we can't actually read each other's minds. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, do you have any uh, favorite episodes people should listen to? Just I don't know. I'm just making conversation here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, there's one that's very good uh, that I think um, there's a, a guy who used to pick at abortion clinics at several mm. cities around the UK um, and would hand out baby clothes to women going into the abortion clinics oh, wow. um, because he was an evangelical Christian. Um, mm. And that conversation, I think, is interesting as to his motivations. There was uh, other other ones that I think are worth uh, listening to. There's a guy I spoke to who was a hollow earther. I don't know if you heard that one. So he was really fun because we spent a long time talking about the physics and the possible physics of the hollow earth before I asked a very throwaway question along the lines of who's been to the hollow earth. And within about five minutes, he's denying the Holocaust and defending the Nazis. And, oh, I, no. and I didn't know how we got there that quickly. Oh, no. But if I, knew, if I knew you were a Holocaust denier, I might have started there rather than spend 40 <laughs> minutes talking about Vikings traveling to the center of the earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was, uh, he was uh, an interesting one. Yeah. And, and there was one that always comes up, which is I spoke to 
guy called Leo Rebello, who was uh, an Indian uh, homeopath and naturopath and Ay- Ayurvedic practitioner mm. who didn't believe that viruses were real. So it's very uh, mm-hmm. apropos of, of now, even though this was recorded several years ago. He was talking at the time about the HIV virus. He didn't think that was real. And he was describing uh, what actually happened to people who suffered from AIDS. What what he believed were the causes were were quite, uh, quite uh, horrible ideas. Um, but why that's an interesting interview is because he fundamentally misunderstood what the purpose of the conversation was. And he thought this was a debate that he, if he just dominated me in the debate, that was a win condition for him. Not understanding mm-hmm. that I don't need to ever win the conversation because that's not my aim. I'm just trying to understand mm-hmm. as much as possible about what the person uh, thinks and how the person's motivations are. And the more of an aggressive person you are and the nastier you get to me during the interview, the easier it is for me to understand a, a little about a little bit about your character and the easier it is for, mm-hmm. for listeners to make their judgments about what kind of character you are. So it was uh, it was a bit of a, an asymmetric conversation, but um, but I think it was an interesting one to listen to for that reason. It sounds like he hoisted himself by his own petard. Yeah, very very say. much so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say if there's like a driving philosophy of your work? What would you say it is? I try to always bear in mind that the the people who hold ideas we disagree with are people. And they came to the, those conclusions for the same reasons that people come to lots of conclusions. It could be things going on in their life. It could be the stresses they're under, the product of their upbringing, the education level that they might have had or whatever information they came across at the worst possible time in their in their lives. And so we don't, we shouldn't write people off based on their worst ideas. We should try to keep them uh, keep in mind that they're people, and even and when they have these these very bad ideas, we don't let them off on that. But we don't write them off on that. We try to find ways to to get them to sense check that and and to come back from that brink. Because ultimately, we want people to come back from that brink and and writing them off and characterizing, uh, caricaturing them and uh, and insulting them never does that. We need to find ways of of mending that bridge and getting people back to a side of reason. I think. Mm. So sort of a like no one ever talks about the good stuff Hitler did. Kind yeah, very philosophy. much so. That's yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'd, I'd said that to someone at a dinner party once. Um, she, there was a little girl there at the time. <laughs> Michael Marshall, thank you so, so much for being on Ona Ross and Carrie. This has been one of my favorite conversations. This has been really fun. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me. Well, that was awesome. Yeah, it was. Hey, how are you doing on Best Fiends? Um, I've already advanced two more levels. Okay, but nice. I swear I was paying perfect attention. <laughs> Thanks for letting me listen in. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you to Michael Marshall. Uh, always so well-spoken, always so thoughtful. And really, listen to Be Reasonable if you haven't yet. If you want to follow Marsh on Twitter, he's at Mr. M. Marsh. That's M-R-M-M-A-R-S-H. That sounds like a vaccine for something. Oh, totally. A vaccine for ignorance. Hey. You know what I mean? He would object. He also runs a blog called The Bad PR Blog where he exposes bad PR practices. Oh. The man, I was going to say the man doesn't sleep, but that's not true. He goes to sleep. Okay. But he's very busy. Clearly. Yeah. Doing good work. That's great. Uh, Excellent. Well, I guess that's it for this episode. Yeah. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support this and all our conversations and investigations by going to MaximumFun.org forward slash join. And you might even find a blog party there. Yeah. Woohoo. You can also support us by sharing us with a friend, leaving us a positive review. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Mm -hmm. That helps Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Because then other people look at that and they see that one star review from the angry flat earther, but then they see the five star <laughs> review from you and they're like, this person sounds reasonable. <laughs> that, I'm going to listen to the show. Is that first thing a real example? Oh, I don't know about the flat earther. I'm sure there are, but there are some angry people who are like, you address the topic that uh, I really care about and gotcha. you did not come to my conclusion. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, this is a sticky wicket. We love you anyway. That's right. Or you could, you know, it's Halloween time. You could get face paint, paint your face and write on rack across your forehead mm-hmm. and no one can say boo about it. <laughs> <laughs> they can, but... But do send us a picture, please. Yeah. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter. You know. We're on Instagram individually. If, yeah, if, if you want that. And remember... Don't take your health advice from stickers on lampposts. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And I'm 
I'm Emily Heller. Nine years ago, we started a podcast to try and learn something new every episode. Things have gone a little off the rails since then. <laughs> Tune in to hear about low stakes neighborhood drama, gardening, the sordid, nasty underbelly of the horse girl lifestyle, hot sauce, <laughs> addiction to TV, and sweaty takes on celebrity culture, and the weirdest, grossest stuff you can find on wikipedia.org. We'll read all of it no matter how gross. <laughs> There's something for everyone on our podcast, Baby Geniuses. Hosted by us, two horny adult idiots. Hang out with us as we try and fail to retain any knowledge at all. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.